Let's, uh, let's pray. So God, we have, we have acknowledged that your, uh, your Holy Spirit's here. And it's really easy to say. It's a factual statement, but sometimes it's beyond our comprehension to understand that your Holy Spirit is here. Your word says it's inside all of us who have opened ourselves to your spirit. But when we gather, the Holy Spirit's here in a unique way. So we welcome the Holy Spirit this morning, and Holy Spirit, we welcome your voice. We welcome you to show us things to the eyes of our hearts and speak to the ears of our hearts. Um, Because we want to know Jesus better. Um, We want to follow Jesus with more... Um, with, with more zeal, because we love you. There's no one like you, Jesus. So we love you, Jesus. Teach us from your word this morning, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this past October 4th and 5th uh, was a celebration day for a lot of people around the world. Anybody remember or have any idea what October 4th and 5th was this year? A lot of people around the world celebrated. Probably nobody here. All right, October 4th and 5th uh, was the days this, this year that the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur fell on, all right? Yom Kippur, uh, the top is Hebrew. Hebrew reads from right to left. Uh, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, all right? It's, it's a day that Jewish people have been celebrating all the way back 3,500 years ago, all the way back to the time of Moses in the book of Leviticus. All right, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, it's considered one of the highest, if not the highest, holiday for the Jewish people. So it's a day where, (laughs) it's a day where the sins of the last year are all atoned for and forgiven. So it's kind of, every Jewish man and woman and child had to gather around the the temple in those days and they had to, uh, that was when their sins for the last year were forgiven. So they didn't do this, but this is just in my mind how somebody, how I might think about it. Go to the next one. This is like my, uh, go to the next slide. This is kind of my uh, Yom Kippur scorecard, all right? So they had to think, they had to remember and be forgiven of all their sins for the last year because they only did it once a year. They weren't asked to record them. But if I ask you to think about all your sins from the last year. So it goes back all the way to November of 21. So you have a little box for every month. I could have given you little golf pencils. You could mark, oh yeah, that, that probably 20 times that month, or whatever. And down one through 10, if we did that one, that's like the 10 commandments, okay? Lying, stealing, sexual sin, disobeying parents or not honoring your parents. So. It would be an overwhelming thing if we passed those out with little pencils and had you try to remember everything this past year that you felt like offended God. Now, for sometimes for some of us, it's way too easy to remember, and it's really heavy to remember. Because feelings of guilt, that's actually a phrase that shows up in our passage today, feelings of guilt are not uncommon, even for those of us who are followers of Jesus. We have these feelings of guilt. We don't feel worthy. We remember things we've done or things we're doing, and we're just like, I don't know what to do with it. 
So we're not going to do that. We're not going to have golf cards turning me. We're not going to keep track. But can you imagine what that might have been like for the Jewish people every year to gather? Yom Kippur. Sins were atoned for for the past year. Then they had to come back next year, again, next year, again, next year, again. And so the feelings of guilt probably never really went away. So there's a certain kind of timidity that comes when you feel guilty around somebody else, let alone God. So we've been talk, doing a series, and today actually is the last one, calling Be, Being Bold. And some of the sermons were being bold on behalf of Jesus, where Paul or Peter or others were speaking clearly about Jesus. But this week and last week, I talking about being bold because of Jesus. Because there's a certain boldness we have with other people to talk about Jesus, but now we're talking about a boldness we have with God as opposed to a timidity, as opposed to a cowering because we don't feel worthy around God. So this, today we're going to look at uh, chap, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. And I just, I'm just calling it this. It's a bold and new way of friendship with God. So let me just give you some background on this passage. So the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish people, Hebrew people, all right, mostly spread around the then known world. They weren't just those in Israel, but all, any Jewish people that were spread around. And what was the issue was a lot of them were tempted to, yeah, we have this Jesus thing and we, get, we understand this, but they were tempted to fall back into what, what I would just call the old ways of being religious. And that's any religion can do that, especially even Christianity. We can just be religious. Go through the motions. Let's figure out how to be moral, good people. But when you throw in the Jesus piece, it becomes a little more hard, maybe, I don't know, difficult, challenging. And it, 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 can, it can really be different. So let's just be religious. Let's just kind of give in and just be do the moral life, go to church every Sunday, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So now these are all Jewish people, so their, their way of being religious was not any different than our way of being religious. Let's just go through the motions. And when I say religious in this case, I'm talking about almost more of a negative sense. We're just a religious person, but that's about it. It's a behavior thing. So they would have known this, because this, this is what the writer refers to that we'll talk about. So every Yom Kippur the high priest would go into the tabernacle and he would atone for all the last year sins of the people. So the tabernacle might have been, I don't know, it could have gone from over here to over here. And when the high priest came in, everybody had to gather there. The high priest would come in and there were basically three rooms. There was a main room where he would enter into and there was a curtain here and then there was another curtain like where the black curtain is. All right. So the high priest, and this was like, a really, really big deal because he was going to be doing something that would atone for all their sins and reconcile the people back with God. So he would come in to the temple and he actually had to, if you read, if you read it's in the Old Testament, book of Leviticus, he, he had to take a special bath and take off all the clothes he had and put on special linen clothes, including a linen kind of turban, only once a year, only once a year. No one else was allowed in this place, all right? Then he would go past the first curtain, and there was a curtain here. So this was called the holy, uh, that, then, then he comes into what's called the holy place. And in this area, 
There was like, uh, over here would have been this candlestick. All these things had symbolic meaning to Jewish people about their exodus from Egypt. Candlestick, there was an incense altar, and over here was this table of bread that basically was kind of a reminder of how God provided David with bread and how he gave the children of Israel manna in the wilderness. So the priest would come in this area. No one else was allowed to come in with him. And if you read the book of Leviticus, it's not humorous, but it kind of is humorous because they keep saying, God's telling Moses, make sure they follow these instructions. Then it adds, or they will die. So God had a very specific way of approaching him, of being a friend with him. All right. So then he would come in here. He would have two goats with him. And then he would go behind this big black curtain. I mean, I don't know if it was black. Actually, I think it was kind of purplish. But the final curtain was into what's called the most holy place. And that's where they had the Ark of the Covenant, which was this chest made of gold that, that led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Had two angels on it. You've probably seen, if you watch, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you see at least a, what it might have looked like. But that's what's back there. The priest goes back there with two goats. One of them, and he has, he, has other, he has other kind of animal sacrifices, other blood being sprinkled here and there. Then he has two goats, and he goes back there, and one of the goats he slaughters and then sprinkles the blood on this Ark of the Covenant behind the curtain. And the Ark of the Covenant was where actually God said, I will dwell there. So the, the, the belief was, and the reality was, the presence of God actually was behind the curtain. But only one man, one time a year, could do it, and he had to do it very specifically. So he'd kill one goat, sprinkle it on the altar. Another goat, he would lay his hands on it, and on that, symbolically, was all the sins of the people over that last year. So all of your sins and everybody else's sins who would have been for the last year are symbolically laid on this goat. And then this goat, called the scapegoat, right, is sent out into the wilderness, takes their sins away with them. All right, so there's all this symbolism, all this ceremony, very specifically... But so every year it was done again and again and again and again and again. So you're in that set system, your total reconciliation with God was only possible really once a year. Because your slate got wiped clean, then you started over again. Then the priest had to, high priest had to do this whole thing again, atone for the sins of the people. It's one of those things that's hard for us to understand to some degree because it's Got so much ceremony and symbolism to it. So in that sense, the Jewish people then believed that their sin was always with them. Yeah, God loves them and God wants to lead them, but their sin was always with them. The guilt of their sin wasn't too far behind. So he's writing to people who are thinking, we're going to go back to the old religion system. It's just easy to go through the motions. Every year we'll go back to do this, do this, do this. But there wasn't any life in that. But it was easier because it was just to go through the motions. Just like for you and me, it's easy to go through religious motions and have your heart totally closed off to God. So they're going through the motions. So that's, he's writing to people who are, and it's, there's persecution going on because of Jesus. So they're just thinking, you know what? Let's go back to the old way. No hassle from outsiders. No awkwardness from people who aren't fans of Jesus. 
Because it was all, the point of persecution was all about Jesus. It wasn't about their religious practices. It was about Jesus. It's just, let's just do this. We think that'll still work, even though we'll carry guilt with us and every year we have to, but it's just easier. Let's just give in, so to speak. That's who, he's, that's who the author's writing to. So Hebrews chapter 10, he's trying to help them understand this whole ceremony is irrelevant now because it's been finished in a whole different way. And that's where he talks about Jesus. But let me just read. I'm going to read from Hebrews 10. So you just listen along. They'll put, there'll be one passage up there toward the end. Go back. No, go back just to the one. Yeah, just stay on this one for now. So this is what he's writing to them. He's writing to people who are on the verge of kind of giving in, giving up, go back to religious life. But he says this, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come. So the whole system he's talking about, this sacrificial system, he had to kill goats, bulls, lambs, this whole system. He said, it was just a shadow. It wasn't, it wasn't the real thing itself. The sacrificer under that system was repeated again and again, year after year, again and again, year after year. But they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time. And their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. So he's writing to people who, they almost have become so familiar with feelings of guilt in their life, they think that's just part of normal religious life. You know, I feel guilty about this. I did this wrong. I did this. I still have this issue. I remember this thing I did in the past. So to them, being religious almost included, yeah, feelings of guilt just comes with it. Because that's what religion does. Makes you feel guilty. Makes you feel bad about yourself. Self-condemning thoughts. All right. And I have to believe, I know it's true, all of us have self-condemning thoughts. We all say things to ourselves kind of in the conversations of our head where we're Reminding ourselves what we've done wrong, how we're messing up. All right? We all have those. So he's saying that the feelings of guilt stay the same. But he said those sacrifices, that old system, actually remind them of their sins year after year. So he said that the life of being religious is the feelings of guilt never leave, and we're just reminded of our sin. Feelings of guilt never leave, we're just reminded of our sin. But we're religious, we're still going to church every Sunday, or in this case, we're going to the tabernacle once a year and doing other things too. But the feelings of guilt still remain, and we're reminded of our sin year after year, day after day, month after month. Then, he kind of shifts and he tries to help them understand Jesus. He says, under the old covenant, which was this, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day and night, day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. So day after day, again and again, day after day, again and again, go through the motions of religion. Hopefully you're, in, this, in that sense, you're really just trying to appease God. Just get him so he's not really mad at you. So again, I'll, go make, I'll you know, confess this, confess this. But then he switches to Jesus. He says, but our high priest, so he's talking about Jesus, our high priest Offering himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made his footstool under his feet. 
For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Forever made perfect, not to be repeated day after day, year after year. And the Holy Spirit also testifies this, for he says, now he, the writer quotes from the Old Testament prophet of Jeremiah, this is the new covenant I will make. I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. There's also passages. So one of the things I think we, me, you, maybe, I'm, I'm assuming you, but I know me, so I'm saying we, is we've been reminded often, and Scripture reminds us of this, but maybe it's, it's, it's been taken out of, out of context in terms of the emphasis. You know, there's a passage in the Bible that says the heart is deceitful among all things. Old Testament and Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. The heart is deceitful among all things, desperately wicked. Therefore, we've come to believe my heart is bad. My heart is bad. Because the Bible tells us that, right? My heart is bad. I need to go every year to be reminded, the temple, blah, blah, blah. My heart is bad. My heart is bad. My heart is bad. My heart is bad. But Jesus says, or the, the, the Hebrew says, no, the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to give you a new heart. Scripture does talk about people that have hard and stony hearts. But then there's this shift with the promise of Jeremiah about the new covenant, which was Jesus. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. And this heart is going to be made of flesh. It's going to be soft. And I'm going to be able to write my laws on there. And you will obey from the inside out. It won't be this heavy thing of, I failed again, I failed again. Then he says, and so dear brothers and sisters, now we go to this next passage. So dear brothers, actually read this out loud with me. Here we go. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter the heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened up a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. So he's saying something that the average Jewish religious person would have been shocked and appalled at. It's like, wait a minute, you're saying it's not just the high priest once a year with all this ceremony stuff and killing bulls and rams. You're saying we can have a friendship with God. Because remember, what happened behind the curtain was where so the Ark of the Covenant was, and it's where this cloud was that was the presence of God. So in the old system, and in the system of religion even today, you can't really have that kind of friendship with God. Because you have too much guilt, too many reminders of your sin, so you're, you feel quite distant from God. Just like you might feel distant from a friend that you have unreconciled with. That's how we feel with God. But he says, so we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. Not meticulous with careful religion and guilt and things like that. Not saying sin doesn't matter because what he says is Jesus already dealt with that. Jesus was the high priest. No more goats and lambs or bulls have to be slaughtered because Jesus was slaughtered. And he says he opened up this new and life-giving way through the curtain. And it's it's a different way for us to relate to God. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to tell a story. I know I've told this before, but I want to tell it again. I wasn't planning to, but I think I want to. Because it helps me understand and maybe can help you understand what this shift is from living a life where we're always reminded of our sins and the feelings of guilt never go away. 
to living a life where we have this new and living friendship with God and our hearts have been changed, all right? So um, when, I was in, when I was in seminary, I was taking a class on Hebrew, Jewish, the Hebrew language. Um, I'll tell you, the, before I start, I got a C- minus in the class, barely passed. Um, it was hard for me, read left to right, different alphabet. But there was one assignment that was really, really grueling, and I'll use that word intentionally. It was long, it was Hebrew language, I was tired, I was worn out. So we did it in a group of people, and actually we ended up, the way we ended up doing it, we were actually cheating. Because instead of me doing, we're supposed to be able to help each other, but instead of me doing all four pages, because it was long, he did page one, he did page two, he did page three, I did page four, and then we just traded answers. I mean, each page, would, rightly done, would have taken about two hours. So if somebody else can do that one, and I trust he's going to have the right, I'll just do it. So, so, uh, so we cheated. I got an A on the homework assignment. And I often say to people, you might think you were in seminary to be a pastor and you were cheating, and my answer is, yeah, I was. Right? Um, it's appalling. Um, so, but I remember, got the grade, and I remember one morning um, trying to pray, and I felt in my head, in my heart, in my whole being, I felt a block with God. I felt like a really thick curtain between me and God. I'm just like, and the passage kept coming over in my head was, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And I actually thought, well, this is just Satan trying to distract me. Because that's good. God understands what I had to do. Because I had, I had to do it because I was just stressed out and I needed to resolve my stress. So surely God understands why I had to cheat to resolve my stress. So, but I, I knew it was God saying, no, you, you got to make this right. And I'm just like, if I make this right and tell the professor and he gives me a zero on this huge assignment... I may actually get a grade such in the class that won't even count for credit. I may have to retake it. So we're talking thousands of dollars, God. Surely you don't, I mean, you've had those conversations with God before. I'm surely, God, you don't want that. I mean, it's money. It's more stress for me. And I feel like I was saying, no, I, I, you got to deal with it. So I went to the professor. I remember that morning, I was, I literally was, my heart was racing all morning. I, I was doing the math of money. Okay. And the doctor, the professor's name was Dr. McGarry. His name was Mad Dog McGarry because he was, hard, he was really intense. So you can imagine just dealing with an intense person. And I was going into the office, and I, I'll just say I had the old covenant way of thinking because I, I under, my, my, which made sense to me at that point. It's like, well, if I tell him I'm wrong, he's going to give me a zero. He'll probably think badly of me. I already think enough self-condemning thoughts about myself for doing this and other things I know. So I remember I went and told him, I said, Dr. McGarry, and I told him what we were doing, and I said, I think how we did it was cheating. And he goes, yeah, it was. I mean, right away, yes, that was cheating. I was like, oh, hope it. And then I, and this is how I think I was before God and still can be. I literally was in my chair. I wanted to fall on the floor and say, I throw myself at the mercy of the court. You know, do what you need to do with me, but just don't fail me. Because I thought I have to, I have to, I have to pay for that sin. I have to pay for that sin. God has to, I have to do something. 
And he said to me, I'm not really thirsty. I'm trying to avoid crying. So. But I still remember what he said to me. And I, and I think it was, it was probably the most important thing I learned in seminary. And I had three years of classes. But this one time he said to me, you know what? Um, you get the grade you got. And I was like, but I cheated. He said, I know. And But he said, he said, just to know that one person's ministry and their career as a pastor, um, that I know you have a tender heart. Because it's at that point, I didn't believe I had a tender heart. I thought I had a stony heart. The Bible tells me so, right? The heart's wicked. I have a stony heart. I was wicked. I did something wrong. I should be punished. And I'm assuming you've all felt that way at times. You may not have, thought, you may not have cheated on a grad school test, but you've done something where you just feel like, ah, I know self-condemning thoughts. You know self-condemning thoughts. And he said, no, it's, you get what you get. And I remember, uh, I remember I had to be somewhere really fast, so I was running across campus. But I don't think, for a couple hundred yards, I don't know if my feet ever touched the ground. Because I was, I was in a, I was like, I, and I actually thought, this is what forgiveness feels like. This is what the grace of God, this is how God looks at me. Because it, it, it was a test that I, or a homework that I messed up on, but I think God used that to say, no, this is how I look at all your sin. You, you continue to condemn yourself because I messed up here, I messed up there, I did this, I can't believe. And he said, no, this is how, and, and there's an old hymn, um, and the chorus goes, uh, said, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. I mean, It was playing, there were no such thing as uh, iPods or iPhones then, but it was playing loudly in my head somehow. And I thought, this, this is how Jesus looks at me when I sin. I'm, I'm still thinking of the old temple. I have to go back there and atone for my sins, and I have to, I have to kill a goat or a lamb because I cheated on this thing. Now, I'm not saying the professor could have easily said, I'm, I'm glad you told me this, but you still need to be penalized for the cheating. He could have said that. And I actually, I talked to this guy 20 years after it happened, and I told him that. And he, I actually told him, I don't remember anything I learned in your Hebrew class. I'm sorry. I don't remember anything. I remember that moment in your office more than anything else. Taught me more about God than anything I learned in seminary. Because I understood that. So there's two things I want to say to you that I think are, that are, that are re result of this passage. One is, uh, your heart is good. You may think, well, yeah, but the Bible tells me my heart's sinful. But Jesus, or the Bible says in the new covenant, I'm, God, so I'm going to give you a new heart. 
and you're going to have a heart of flesh. And your heart, the Holy Spirit gives you a new heart. Yeah, there's still old things that are fighting inside there, but you have a, new, you have a good heart. Your heart is not bad. So if my heart is good, then God looks at me that way. He doesn't look at the, all the records of my scorecard of cheating or sexual morality or dishonesty. He doesn't look at that. Doesn't mean he doesn't care, but he doesn't look at that. It's not like, no, I got, you got to make sure these are all cleaned up for it. Your heart is good. Scripture says that. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, I will give you a new heart. Jeremiah, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel says the same thing. I'll give you a new heart. That's the new covenant. If you're living in the old covenant, you will still be the kind of person like I was, and I still can be, who is overwhelmed by ah, self-condemnation. Uh, and I guess I kind of assume that God must be a little bit upset with me because of A, B, C, or D. I've had met, I've, you know, so your heart's good. With the Holy Spirit in you, your heart's good. Second thing is this. Uh, God has not one condemning thought toward you. Not one. You might think, well, but if you, you don't know what I've done. No, God does. If you have the Spirit of God in you, the Spirit of Jesus in you, God has not one condemning thought toward you. Because Scripture says, Romans 8, therefore there's now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is the law of sin and death. I'm guilty. I've got I to pay it off. I, I'm always going to have this cloud of guilt hanging over my head my whole Christian life, especially because I'm a Christian and because I feel guilty, but God has not one condemning thought toward you. I have a lot toward myself. I mean, not a lot. I mean, it's not like all the time, but I have enough condemning thoughts toward myself. And then to be reminded that God hasn't any condemning thoughts toward you. God doesn't see that when he sees me. I mean, I have condemning thoughts toward other people at times. I drive by people, and, oh, well, I can't believe they're doing that. I can't believe this. God doesn't have any condemning thoughts toward anybody who has the Spirit of Christ, including you. He has not one condemning thought toward you. This, this, actual, this actual statement is really hard, but refreshing for me to kind of believe. Because it's like, really? I mean, I, I know what I do. I know even little things I, I probably where I've crossed the line of sin or whatever, I was like, but no, God has not one condemning thought toward you. Not one. And let me read that passage from Romans one more time. This is Romans 8, 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Because in the old sin that leads to death, religion, atonement, sacrifices. In that system, the, here's the Ten Commandments, all right? Here's how we hear it in that system. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not dishonor your parents. And we hear it, I'm, I'm exaggerating the voice, but I think that's how we hear it. Thou shalt not. And if you do, woe be to you, right? That's the power of sin that leads to death. It's the same commandments. The power of the life-giving spirit in me, the Ten Commandments now read this way. You will now become the kind of person 
who will not sin, who will not covet. You can now, you will now be the kind of person who shall not lie, who shall not steal, who shall not commit sexual sin. Because you can be that person. It's a promise. It's not a threat. The, old, the Ten Commandments read incorrectly is a, a system of threats, of thou shalt not, and if you do, woe be to you. This power of the spirit of life from Romans 8 is, no, now you can become the kind of person who doesn't steal. It's not natural to you anymore because your heart is now new. It's heart of flesh. So living in those two, those are two vastly different worlds, exact same words. Thou shalt not or you are now the kind of person who shall not steal, who shall not commit sexual immorality, who shall not lie because your heart if you live out of your heart, that's who you are, because the Holy Spirit's in you. And that's what I, the, the, uh, the author of the Hebrews is trying to tell people that. You, this is how you live now. You don't live in this dark, thou shalt not, and if you do, because Jesus already paid for that. I mean, uh, the... Uh, the priest, and we'll lead, this is leading into communion, the priest in the old system would lay his hands on the goat, right? And in laying his hands on the goat, he was laying on all the sins of the people on the goat. Then the goat was sent into the wilderness, so their sins were taken away, at least for that year. What we do every Sunday at Exodus, I don't lay my hands on the cross, but let's say I'm laying the sins of all of us on this, and they're gone. So when you come forward communion, you don't come to a God who you have to appease because you've, you've got way too many marks on your sin card. You don't have to do that. You now come to God who says, no, no, I, I'm not. We even try to shove our sin card into God's face. And he's like, I don't, I don't even know what that is anymore. I just want you. And I'm going to give you my life inside of you. And then so when Jesus said, every time you eat this, remember this, that there's forgiveness of sins here. It's not, this is not a reminder of condemnation. We don't take communion because we're trying to earn favor with God. And you don't have to be perfect to come. I mean, there are, there are some religious people who will say, if you've sinned, you can't take communion. I, I, I know this because I know people. They've been told you can't, can't take communion for six months. Because you, I uh, can't remember if it was stealing, I remember what the person did. So you, you're, you're banned for communion until you pay off your debt and appease God. And that's a travesty of the gospel of Jesus. That's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is those who need this is everybody. We all need the grace of Jesus. Our sins are gone. And this is a reminder of the Holy Spirit in us who's given us a new heart, who gives us a heart of flesh, who can be responsive to God. And it's the feelings of guilt and the reminder of sin. It's here and it's gone because Jesus was the one who took it. So when we say Jesus took my sins away, it's not just this nice lyric for a song. It's not, he, he literally took it and it's gone. He doesn't, so those of us who come forward to communion, God doesn't have one condemning thought for you, not one. And those of us who come forward to communion, every one of you has a good heart. 
because the Holy Spirit's inside of you, all right? So Aaron, come on up and lead us. We're going to sing another song. And uh, so we're going to go to the red slide there. It's just a repeat of what we said before, we read before. Um, actually, read this out loud with me, and then we'll, I'll pray and we'll take communion. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. We can boldly come to the table of Jesus. Here we go. By his death, Jesus opened up a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. So Jesus, Scripture just tells us, and we believe it, is that you opened up a whole new way for us to relate to God, that we don't relate to you out of feelings of guilt or heaviness or self-despair or self-condemnation, but we relate to you we relate to God directly because of what you did in opening up. Uh, and the curtain was torn in two, the Bible tells us, the moment you died on the cross. It was gone. There was no more division. So, God, we want to be the kind of people who understand and live in this kind of friendship with you. It's a bold friendship. almost seems wrong. But yet we want to be that kind of friends with you. We can hear you, and we, you, you, we know you hear us, and we know you speak to us. And we have a friendship that breathes life and peace and joy into our souls because of what Jesus has done for us. And we ask this all in the great name of Jesus. Amen.